Have you ever wondered what it's like for other people to go through a life event? Is it the same for them? Is it different? And how? My name is Dr. Nikkel Rogers-Webb. I'm a psychologist. I'm doing a podcast with my mom, Dr. Elsa Rogers, Dean of General Studies. And we're going to be talking to different people about what it's like to go through a single life event at the same time. Ever wondered what your psychologist is thinking? Well, I don't know, but I can tell you what I am thinking, and I'm our guest this week. My name is Dr. Nikkel, and mom basically said, you know, I'd like to interview a psychologist. Where might we find one of those? So I ended up being the guest for this week. We're gonna talk about a lot of different things from what psychologists actually do, to are they reading your mind, to why should I be in therapy? I hope that it is informative and helpful. And also, I give a shout out to Malcolm Gladwell. I hope that he likes us just as much as we like him. Hello, folks. Welcome to our podcast. Today, we are doing something that's a bit different than from what we've been doing for the last uh few podcasts. I'm going to play host, the only host, and I'm I'm actually interviewing my daughter, the co-host, Nikhil Rogers Wood. So Nikhil, would you please introduce or reintroduce yourself to our listeners? Um, yes. So um, my name is Nikhil, but officially I'm Dr. Nikhil Rogers Wood. I'm a licensed psychologist. Um, I have my bachelor's and master's degrees in psychology and then a doctoral degree, a PhD in counseling psychology. And I have been really lucky. I've gotten to do, gosh, almost everything that I think that somebody um, with my training could do. So um, I have been an adjunct faculty member as well as an assistant professor, but most of the time I've functioned in some way, shape or form as a licensed psychologist, and that's what I currently do. I'm a licensed psychologist, and I'm part of a group private practice. Uh, I'm the clinical director there, and I also um, see individuals and families for therapy. And then that's half of what I do as a clinician, and then the other half is uh, psychoeducational testing. Oh, that's great. But can you give us an idea of where, what path you took? To arrive at where you are right now? Yes, it was actually, I think, um, maybe it was, it was unusual because I knew I wanted to be a psychologist from the time I was 14 years old. And most people don't actually end up doing what they imagine that they'll do. So I think that was a little bit unusual, um, which is why all of my degrees are in the field of psychology. But I can tell you this, that I didn't actually know what psychologists did until I got to graduate school and half of that, the, the testing part, I, I had no idea psychologists did that. I remember getting my course schedule um, and in your first year of graduate school, at least where I went, the um, graduate student coordinator went ahead and signed up the new students because we had no idea what we were doing. And I wondered, she has signed me up for this assessment class? Like, what is this? Um, and so I ended up learning it and saying, oh my gosh, I will never do this. <laughs> Not for me. And although I really 
enjoyed doing therapy, there were times, um, you know, even including when I was about to graduate with my PhD and then intermittently through my career where I thought, maybe I need to, you know, do something totally different and go into corporate America or, or something else and not do therapy. But for whatever reason, I kept coming back. Um, there were a lot of different circumstances um, over the years, but I just have always come back. And so I, I think I've kind of embraced that this is probably what I'm supposed to be doing. Oh, that's great. Now, you mentioned just now uh, that uh, you weren't quite sure or you weren't quite, you didn't quite know what psychologists do. Can you give us an idea of exactly what psychologists do or perhaps even in your realm of psychology? Sure. So there's a lot of different ways that somebody who has advanced training in psychology can function. So something that a lot of people don't know is that psychologist is a licensed term. So what that means is that unless you hold a license to practice as a psychologist in one of the 50 states, you can't call yourself a psychologist, even if you have a doctoral degree in psychology. So it's a licensed term. So you'll, you'll hear a lot of people just assuming that someone with a PhD or a PsyD or an EDD is a psychologist. That's not automatically so. And also, um, there are a lot of ways that a psychologist um, looks like other mental health professionals, but there are very subtle differences in what the different disciplines do. So not everybody who does therapy is a psychologist either. So for those who are licensed psychologists, we do a variety of things. There are some people who decide to get and keep a license and become university professors so that they can train up the next group of psychologists and make sure that um, the new psychologists know what to do and how to do it. There are people who function primarily in testing, and those people can be either psychologists like myself or neuropsychologists who have specialized training and several years um, not just in graduate school, but beyond graduate school, where they understand brain function and anatomy and all these other things just at a, a more in-depth level. Then, you know, beyond the testing, and actually, let me come back to testing. There's a lot of different kinds of testing that we do. So um, sometimes you'll think about people who get diagnosed with ADHD or learning disability or something like that they have often gone in to see a psychologist to um, have specified testing where we learn how their brain works, how their brain processes information and you know, attention and other skills. So we, it's like getting all of these puzzle pieces and the psychologist puts it together to make sense of how that person moves through the world especially on the academic side, like what's happening to them when they're in the classroom or reading or doing math or writing. Um, and what's kind of cool about the testing piece is that only psychologists are trained to do that, really. Um, that's one of the things that is unique to us, although a lot of psychologists don't test, but it is something that is unique to our field. And then there's therapy, which isn't you know, people who are not psychologists do therapy, licensed marriage and family therapists, licensed professional counselors. So there are a lot of really well-trained mental health professionals like licensed clinical social workers are in there too. So there are a lot of really good clinicians who aren't psychologists who also do therapy. But basically the therapy can be 
individual. It can be families. It can be couples. And then I have uh, a number of friends and colleagues who went the sports psychology route. So performance enhancement and all of the things that come along with being an elite athlete, because it's not just about what goes on on the field, but it's the stresses and things that these individuals and or their family members have to navigate um, as part of that um, kind of elite athlete space. So we do a lot of, of different things. You know, that, that is really fascinating. I didn't, I never ever realized that there was such a, a wide range of psychologists. I thought that almost anybody who did therapy was a psychologist in some, in some form or other. I didn't realize it was really someone who had to be licensed. But you also mentioned uh, a while ago that you look at brain function. I typically think of when you are examining or uh, the brain, that somehow you have some machine and you're plugged into machines and then the machine mm-hmm. reads what's going on in your head. How do psychologists do that? Yeah, so, um, and I'm going to try to make this not super duper boring because like, I think it's so interesting, but I also know it's very um, niche <laughs> in a way. But if you look at like the field of assessment, you've got like the educational side. In my field, counseling psychology, we also do vocational testing. So that's the career side. And then there's personality testing, and we can mix and mingle all of those. So when it comes to something like, let's say I'm trying to figure out, does somebody have dyslexia, which is a a broad term for uh, a learning difficulty in reading? What I'm doing is I'm looking at all of these pieces of the things the brain has to do in order to read. And it's a pretty complex task because we just think, okay, I've given you a set of words. Can you read it? Really, in order to read, I have to be able to engage in letter recognition. And it's not just recognizing what an A, a B, or a C looks like. It's maybe I recognize it, but how long does it take me to see that? Send that signal to my brain. My brain then goes into my long-term memory and pulls out Okay, that symbol represents an A, and then pull it back to my working memory so I can use it. So there's Mm -hmm. that. There's also, can I hear letter sounds? Because before we read, we speak, and we start to make sense of language in that way. So is is my reading problem really not so much that I can't understand what's on the page, but that I never really understood how the sounds went together? Uh, Is it that... I can't I can look at the individual letters but I can't combine them. Is it my reading rate? Am I reading words so slowly that by the end I don't understand what I've read because I had to put so much effort into just trying to what we call decode words to figure out what mm-hmm. they were. So there's so many and that's only a handful of the things that go into a reading disability. And some people have multiple problems in different areas. And some people, you know, it's pretty much in one area. And so that tells me kind of what, by by testing each of these individual areas, that tells me, oh, okay, it's a problem with this, or it's a problem with that. And so then I'm able to make sense of it as I put all the, the person's performance across all kinds of different areas together. And I talk with their teachers and their parents. And so it's not the same as like when a neurologist puts you 
and an MRI and can see what lights up. Um, but I do, we do know something about how information is processed for different skills that we use. And so that's what we're testing when we're doing um, a formalized uh, assessment. I see. So um, except for dyslexia, what, what other kinds of testing do you do? Well, Gosh, just about everything. So we'll do IQ testing for students who are looking to be in gifted and talented programs. We will also test for ADHD because you know, a pet peeve of mine has been ever since graduate school, finding out that people will get diagnosed, quote unquote, with ADHD by just somebody taking a checklist and checking it off. Mm-hmm. And what we know, and I've seen this myself through testing, is that ADHD is a form of attention difficulty. And so that could be that you drift off and you just kind of zone out, or it could be that you fidget, you have a hard time sitting still, or it could be a combination of you know several different things. And what we know is that you can legitimately have an attention difficulty, but it comes from being really anxious or depressed. And so your presentation looks like it might be ADHD, but when we get into more testing, we see more. I, I like to give the metaphor of it's like a fever. I could mm-hmm. have an ebonic plague or I could have a flu. Huh. It, I've got the same set of symptoms, but the root cause is different. And so the way that I would treat that is different. So that's why it's so important for a good evaluation because a good evaluation drives diagnosis and diagnosis drives treatment. Okay, I got it. Now, you, you mentioned, uh, um, um, uh, there's so many things I always wanted to ask a psychologist, and uh, shame on me, you're my daughter. <laughs> I know, I, I see you all the time. <laughs> <laughs> okay, but going back to, uh, you said that you do assessment as well as you do therapy. Many people are, this is a, this is a two-barreled question. Okay. Many people, first of all, are don't like the notion of having to go to therapy because they feel it's that something is actually wrong with them. Mm-hmm. How correct or incorrect is that uh, perspective? And secondly, do you believe that some people can actually be um, acting out in a certain way when you see them so that you diagnose them, but your diagnosis is incorrect because they are not really being their true self? Oh, very good questions. And this this area I feel much more comfortable with because <laughs> there was a chunk of my career where I didn't test at all, like I refused, and it's only in my current job that I that I'm testing yeah. all the time. So, um this I feel like yes, I can answer this for you. Okay. <laughs> so, uh in terms of is there something wrong with me? I hear this all the time. This I think is the heart mm-hmm. of the stigma behind mental health and seeking treatment for it. That, oh my gosh, you must be crazy if you're going to see a therapist. And that couldn't be further from the truth. Especially in my discipline, counseling psychology focuses traditionally on the walking well. So like way back, like we're talking like 60s, 70s, there was a a split between clinical psychology and counseling psychology where your clinical Mm -hmm. psychologist saw people who were in the hospital. And your counseling psychologists were more your outpatient docs. That has changed quite a bit. Like I know I've worked in health psychology type settings with my training. So it's not that split down the middle. But really what I learned over 
you know, during my training and over the years is that we all go through periods that are challenging where we could use somebody to walk alongside us and really hear us. Uh, And sometimes, I mean, many people are, are fortunate to have very supportive friends and family members Um, But a lot of people don't have that. And even when you do have that, they have all kinds of bias. They might be motivated to get you to see things from a certain perspective, or you might be uncomfortable sharing certain things because, oh, what if this comes back in four or five years in some way, shape, or form? Um, So Mm -hmm. it's really nice to have somebody who is not involved in your life at all sit down and really listen to you. And part of our job is to really hear you fully, not just what you're saying, but what you're not saying or might be afraid to say out loud and really working through that with you and talking through that with you. And that does not mean that there's something deeply wrong with you. It's that you needed this additional support and a, a new way of walking through your life experience that had you been able to do that on your own, you would have, but sometimes we just aren't able to. And that's not a sign of illness. That is a sign Mm -hmm. that we need support at the same time. Yes. There are times when people do have a severe mental health concern um, that, you know, something that people often think of as like psychosis or something like that, where you're hearing things or seeing things or, You're not experiencing the world um, in a way that like the typical brain would make sense of. And so in those instances, those people um, would interact with the mental health provider slightly differently. Like I will probably really work closely together with a psychiatrist if somebody's got a psychotic disorder, because you can't do therapy if your brain is, is telling you that I am trying to put you in chains and send you off to, you know, prison or something like that, because, you know, your brain is just not working in the way that it would typically work were all your um, neurochemicals balanced. Now, that being said, I want to be really clear, just because you need medication doesn't mean that you're deeply ill either. There are many people who need medication for things from ADHD to you know, I just feel kind of anxious when I go around people and I need to be able to to function. And so it's brain chemistry. And so the idea, and this is a classic one, but we don't judge people who need insulin because they have diabetes, whether that's type one or type two. It's the same thing with certain men- mental health concerns. Sometimes we're born with it because we've got a genetic predisposition and sometimes it's triggered by different life events. Whatever the case, it's just as valid to take medication. And really, it's about a quality of life thing here, um, not mm. you know, white knuckling it just because I'm worried that people are going to think ill of me that I need additional help. I think you've really explained it well for the layman, because I hope that for the folks who are listening to this podcast, that they can understand that it is just another form of illness and not necessarily that they are... Different, so different that they need medication in order to navigate their way through the world. Another issue that sometimes comes up, and I'm going to use an example of a colleague of mine who uh, many times he would not tell someone he was a psychologist because they always said, oh, 
you're reading my mind. <laughs> no, you mentioned um, that uh, that sometimes you can say, not you, but psychologists sometimes can determine what you're saying and also what you are not saying. How do you determine that without being a mind reader? Well, it's not even so much determining it. I think about myself as almost like a detective. I have a lot of hypotheses and a lot of questions, which beget more questions. So I'm not reading anybody's mind. Um, It's more (laughs) of when somebody first comes in to see me, I just say to them, okay, where do you want us to start? What do I need to know in order to help you best? And so that usually gets them started on um, what's been bothering them the most. And then we start to kind of get further into that. And, and as any normal conversation, it might shift to something else that's kind of related and then it shifts and then it shifts. And I um, will also, during that first meeting, ask them different things about friends and work, significant others, parents, siblings, just to get a real sense of them in context. And then I start to put puzzle pieces together. Uh-huh. And it might be that I, and it might not be me saying, oh, so this means this, which is called interpretation. And mm-hmm. um, that has its place in therapy, but we don't use it in the same way that you might have heard about it, like with Sigmund Freud, where he'd listen to his people talk and say, okay, this is what this means. <laughs> um, we don't really do that as much. I know that I don't because. I'm in partnership with my clients, but I might say, huh, you know, you mentioned X, Y, Z about um, this friendship ending, but that reminds me an awful lot of this conflict that you had um, back when you were a teenager. Like, are those things similar? Are they at all connected? And sometimes I am completely off base and my client says, no, that's not really you know, that doesn't resonate for me. Mm -hmm. And at other times I go, yeah, I have noticed that. And at other times, usually further on into the therapy, I'm getting um, kind of a, oh, I didn't connect that before. Because Mm -hmm. I'm getting to know them, I'm hearing them, and I have the time to really pay attention in new and different ways. Okay, so I think that answers the question that we sort of um, veered off from earlier about whether a patient or or client can actually be lying to you because you have spent time to actually determine what they're saying and what they are not saying, and sometimes they forget, and you put the pieces together as the detective. Yes, so this is the funny thing. I love the author Malcolm Gladwell, and I think you do too, Mom. Yes, I do. I read some of his books and I also love his podcast. And there was one episode about how we are just terrible lie detectors. Like we cannot tell when people are lying. And I think this one actually came from maybe not his podcast, but his book that was the the audio book for talking to strangers was recorded a lot like a podcast. If you haven't listened, I, I, Oh yeah, I purposefully did not read the book because I wanted to hear it in, in audiobook form. It's excellent. Um, and no, we are not <laughs> being paid by Malcolm Gladwell. It's just really good. But I thought it was very interesting because um, he had a section about 
there were people who were trained to listen and figure out when people are lying and they can't reliably do that. And so it's the same for psychologists who like, I'm not in a forensic setting. There are forensic psychologists who do things with the legal system. I don't do that. So I, my lie detector, I can't say is like, you know, awesome or something like that, but I am listening to people in a way that we don't typically listen to people in our day-to-day lives because we're really Mm -hmm. busy But in my office, my job is to listen to you. And I think particularly when I, um, there are a couple of things that I get to do as a psychologist that I think illuminates things when maybe a client's not being totally transparent. Mm -hmm. The first thing is that because I have practiced in group settings for the most part, we consult with other therapists and psychologists in our setting. So all that information stays in-house, and this is in our informed consent. We explain that sometimes we'll have to kind of check in with the testing team or the clinical team to make sure everybody's getting the best care. Mm-hmm. Um, but it all stays in-house if I'm going, okay, this doesn't make sense because I have a guiding principle that everything everybody does makes sense. If it doesn't make sense, then I don't have all of the information. Okay. And so if you've come in presenting a certain way, if I only see you once or twice, I, I might not catch it. I might kind of feel like things might be off, but I might not completely catch it. Mm-hmm. However, if I continue to see you, like you said, it's hard to maintain the same thing over session after session, especially if somebody is interacting with you at a different and deeper level. So that's one thing that I, I get to interact with people differently. I also get to consult, but when I test, that's when I really get it. Because Mm -hmm. one of my favorite things, actually, even since graduate school is personality testing. And there are a lot of different personality tests where you can't really fake it. Because there's not like a right or wrong answer. And so I will get plenty of information about um, how motivated you are or aren't to be honest. So while I might not know exactly what's going on, when I test, hmm. I'll be able to say something is not quite right here. Oh, I'm not getting all of the information. Okay, but this brings me to another question. You mentioned you really listen in your office. Do you find yourself doing the same kind of listening outside of your office? Uh, or, or, in other words, people tend to be afraid of psychologists because for yeah. that re- very reason that you are somehow psychoanalyzing them. But do you do that outside of the office? I, and I listen to my friends and family. So I, <laughs> I'm paying attention. It's not like I'm not listening, but I, I try when I'm done at work to be done, you know? Um, mm-hmm. But and I think this is true for everybody, we bring our whole selves with us everywhere, whether we are emphasizing a certain part of ourselves at a different point in time. And so I you know, have training and work as a psychologist. And so that's part of what I carry around. And so when I'm in regular conversation, I'm not analyzing what people say or asking deeper level questions or trying to weave stuff together. That's that. I mean, when you get through with a day I know it just seems like we're just talking to people all day but it's exhausting because you're do, you're really active in the process. So I don't engage in that same way but I will tell you that sometimes my brain can't help it and so there'll be times where I'm like, well, 
I might think that's thus and such or thus and such. And it's very funny because my, um, for my husband, some people know that I'm a psychologist and um, they're like, your wife doesn't like analyze your work people, does she? <laughs> and so like, I think people just kind of get nervous um, sometimes. Oh. Um, so, I mean, I, I use that as I kind of analyze my world and things like that, but I, I, do not make it a point to to take it around to like social events. Mm -hmm. <laughs> well, that makes me feel a little more comfortable. <laughs> what's a, what's the typical length of a therapy, or, is that, or does that vary based on the issues that you are examining? Do you mean like session length or number no, of sessions in a course? Number of sessions. I'm sorry. That does vary in terms of the presenting concern. Uh, the client's motivation, whether you are in a private practice setting that takes insurance or does not take insurance. Mm -hmm. And then also like if you're in, um, like when I was in a health psychology setting, the setting I was in was skilled nursing yes, and also rehab. And I don't mean like alcohol and drug rehab. I mean like I broke a hip rehab. Um, so the length of therapy very much varies. So I have been in my current um, job for about two years and I have some clients who I started seeing maybe one month after I got to work and I still see them periodically. Either that's because they just come in once a month or I'll see them for a few months and then they'll say, okay, I'm good. And then they'll call me, you know, three or four minutes later and say, okay, Dr. Nickel, I just want to talk to you. There's some stuff going on. And that to me, I really like being in a setting where I can do that because I think that is how you use therapy, that it's not something that you wait until the wheels are falling off the car to like drag yourself in. Um, because when things are terrible, when you're in crisis, it's harder to work. So mm -hmm. you come in, you do your course of therapy and maybe you come back. It really varies. Gosh, I've yeah, I've had some people for two years. Um, mm -hmm. I've had other people who come in and see me maybe three or four months. And it really, it depends on what their goals are. Some people say, I just want to alleviate the depression or anxiety that I feel. Mm -hmm. And they're able to do that um, because they're actively engaged in therapy, not just in the session, but outside. Because that's the other thing. I see my clients for 45 minutes out of 168 hours in a week. Where do you think the work is getting done? Ah, outside. Yeah. A lot of people don't realize that. A lot of people think, I go in, see my therapist, and she will fix me. I do not have a magic wand. So I'm here with you, and we will do our thing in session, and I will, you know, continue to, to work with you in session. And, and I do think about my clients between sessions, but you have to do the work. Mm. But yeah, the the course of treatment, yeah, it varies widely because I've, you know, sometimes been able to see people once and it might be they decide I'm not ready or they get discharged home or, or what have you. Mm. Um, also now I get a lot more personal growth clients. So they might've come in with anxiety or depression that was pretty bad. Mm -hmm. And maybe we get that resolved after six to eight weeks, um, depending on, you know, kind of yeah. the severity. And then they might discover, well, you know, there are some self-esteem things that I really need to work on. 
But I wonder now with what's going on in the country with this stay-at-home orders and the quarantining and the, the whole pandemic situation, how many of, of your clients or clients in general would have had the wheels fall off? What do they do in this situation? Or what have you done in this situation? Um, it's it's presented some unique challenges. And so, you know, a lot of my sessions have kind of talked about how to navigate this pandemic. Some of my clients have really struggled. It's it's triggered anxiety or depression for them. But I have had some who have thrived because it has it has redefined what's important and what's not. And so they were able to shift their focus in new ways, which was really neat to see. I, I'm starting to kind of move toward mindfulness practices in my work. And, um, and I, gosh, for the life of me, I cannot remember the theorists, but um, there's something called radical acceptance. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there are a lot of different ways that people describe it, but it's this idea that part of the struggle that we have is continuing to insist that we can control things. And so I'm kicking and screaming against, you know, this COVID pandemic. And I'm like, it can't be happening. I don't want it to be happening. It's not happening. And the reality is that I can't control whether or not it's happening. I can control what I do. So the radical acceptance is just like, okay, it is. There, there is no pushing back against that. Because if I do, I mean, I can if I want, but that's not going to take me anywhere. Mm-hmm. So I, I need to just fully, radically accept that this is the reality. Okay, now that I've done that, I can then determine how then to proceed. Um, am I going to decide that kind of that eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow mm-hmm. we die, this whole mm-hmm. idea of I just want to live my life the way I want to, no matter what. Or am I, which is a choice that you can make, or am I going to decide, all right, I am just going to have to shift my behavior in different ways and get used to it. Mm-hmm. I see. I feel like I went very far afield. <laughs> no, 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 no. So that's that's what, how... It does make sense. But I'm hearing also that perhaps some of the issues that people uh, people are dealing with, they have to deal with the reality outside and therefore they thrive. How do you explain that? Well, I think um, for some people it is, life is noisy. And I think that that's part of the reason why I start to gravitate more toward the mindfulness pieces of things um, therapeutically, because life is extremely noisy. If you think about it, Okay, we're just living and we can determine like what's important in terms of our relationships and things like that. However, once life starts going, if you've got work, if you've got friends, if you've got family, whether that's parents, siblings, children, spouse, if you feel like you've got to get extra exercise, if you have um, additional responsibilities, whether that is taking care of your home or you have agreed to participate in certain things, whether um, that's coaching or volunteering or being involved in your faith community. And then, oh yeah, I wanted to read these self-help books. And oh, I was trying to cook from scratch. And then I also needed to plan this upcoming event for work because I went ahead and volunteered. And then do you see where it went? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That 
none of the things that I mentioned are bad. They all have a place. Mm -hmm. But when it's all flying at your face at a hundred miles an hour, we don't take the time to stop because we feel, we suddenly feel like all of that's obligatory. It, It just becomes this way of life for us. And we never slow down and say, all right, is that actually where I wanted to give my time? Right. Who did I actually want to spend time with or was I doing it because it's what one does? And so for some of my clients, when all of the pressure comes off all of a sudden, if they have been able to radically accept where they are, even if it's unpleasant, they accept it. Because acceptance doesn't mean liking it. Acceptance means just acknowledging that this is the situation. So for the ones who have thrived, they have radically accepted their situation and they've started um, being very mindful of, you know, doing little things like if they're able to go for a walk outside, this is something I'm able to do. I can feel the wind in my hair, the sun on my face. I can actually have this full conversation with somebody via FaceTime because I'm not commuting mm-hmm. two hours every day. So they are, they have slowed down enough to start to pick and choose in a, in a very, um, not conscientious, but in a, in a deliberate mm. yes, manner. Yes. And I think maybe in a way we all needed that to just to slow down a bit to determine what's important to us and, 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 to, and just to deal with that uh, level of importance. But um, for those people who need therapy uh, right now, and they are, I'm sure there are quite a number who do, what have you or your office done to sort of, alleviate their need so that they can still feel as if they're connected to a therapist or in your case, a psychologist. So the thing that's really cool is that we live in a day and age of digital connectedness. And so something that's really neat that my practice did was that we have a social media presence that's more than just like words on a page, although blogs are wonderful. We do that as well. But um, we had, I think before we, before any of this started happening back like last year, we were recording occasional videos. And then I thought, oh, this is kind of fun. So um, we re-upped our Instagram and I started doing weekly videos. And so when the pandemic hit, my boss and I said, huh, how can we continue to provide support to the community. So it was, it was beyond just our clients. We wanted people to, you know, have some tips for navigating this for themselves, as well as, you know, you've got your kids home. What are some ideas about, you know, maintaining mental wellness? Um, So we were doing that as just a way of kind of reaching out. And I know that I was doing some posts of my own on social media and I'm not much of a social media person, but I felt like it was important so that's been really, um, I think, neat. There are a lot of apps out there that um, help people with things like yoga and meditation. But if you need therapy, this is a unique time because I think before it was like no therapy at all unless you can get into the psychologist or therapist's office, or maybe you can do a phone session. And while phone can be quite effective, I have found that my previous clients, the people I was seeing pre-pandemic, I'm able to connect with really well on video conferencing platforms like Zoom. Mm -hmm. 
And then I've gotten a number of new people who I feel like I've really gotten to know and we're doing really good work. So, you know, don't be afraid to reach out to um, a therapist in your area because certainly um, you can still do therapy. And a lot of people, I think, were concerned about how's that going to feel doing therapy on Zoom? And so I just encourage them, you know what? We can even just do it for five minutes. So you can meet me, I can meet you, and you can see what this feels like and if it feels organic enough. Mm -hmm. And almost everybody has been like, oh, well, this was a lot better than I thought. (laughs) Okay, I'll do this. Because often the alternative is sitting with whatever you're struggling with. So you can still do great, great therapy work, even during, you know, a time of um, social distancing. Mm-hmm. Yes, because, you know, I think of a, perhaps a therapist or psychologist being in, in, in an office and a client coming in and you are separated by six feet and you're wearing masks. That doesn't seem like the sort of uh, environment or atmosphere that will make someone feel welcomed and accepted or anything like that. In fact, it's rather off-putting. I know. Is That's the thing that is so strange about this new situation that, you know, a lot of people are, are wanting to be um, back in the office with us as therapists. But yeah, I, like, we haven't come to, you know, some consensus as an office, but speaking just for myself, I'm kind of wondering about that, that I'm going to put you six to 10 feet away from me and then elevate my voice through my mask and you elevate your voice through yours. Like there's so much of the therapeutic process that I rely on facial expressions and like even just a slight little shift where I can tell that your energy level has changed or maybe you are pushing back tears or all of these things that you learn to pick up over the years um, of doing therapy that I, I fear I will miss if I'm masked up in an office. And so I really, I, I'm liking Zoom as, as an option mm-hmm. right now. Oh, wonderful. Can you, uh, and we've, uh, we've come to the, uh, almost the end of our podcast, but is there anything else that you would like our audience to know? Um, don't downplay the fact that therapy can, I mean, it can really enrich your life. And I feel like for some reason, like on this podcast today, I was very serious and like psychoeducationally <laughs> focused. And um, one of the things that I actually use quite a bit in my own work is humor. So I'm not like laughing at my clients or their you know situation, but there when it's appropriate and when I have that relationship, it's not unusual to hear laughter from my office or, you know, from outside of the room where I'm doing Zoom, Mm -hmm. as it is now, Um, that is a part of the work that I do. So it's not all serious doom and gloom. You're really connecting with a real person. So don't forget about that in therapy. We're real people. And um, we really do care about you. And yeah, it's, it's not as scary as you might my thing. Well, that, that that is good. Now we've come to the last question, the question that I'm I'm sure that you are familiar with, and I'm going to ask it of you. If you had the opportunity to go back to speak to your 15 year old self, what would you tell her? You know, I <laughs> I think I answered this question in our first episode, and then 
of course, I've heard all these lovely mm-hmm. <laughs> um, responses from all of our guests. And the one that's lingering with me is from um, the Reverend Terry Miller, mm-hmm. who had a totally different answer that just kind of like tickled my brain in this really good way. But I still think that I would, um, I would go back and tell my 15-year-old self to live a little and not be so rule bound. And it's not that mom, don't worry. I'm not looking to go back in time and like break all these rules and be a little hellion. Um, But I think when I, when I look at my life, I was so focused on doing it right or doing it perfectly or what was quote appropriate that um, I think sometimes I missed out on some really cool things that maybe do stuff out of order. Don't be afraid to take a year off and do something strange and unconventional. And so I think that, yeah, I would tell my 15-year-old self, don't be quite so rule-bound. Take the long way around and see see what you find. Well, that's that's great. That's really, really great. I think quite a number of 15-year-olds who may be listening to this podcast may just take your advice. It's been a pleasure speaking with you, and I hope to see you sometime again soon. Okay, thanks so much. So there you have it. Some information about what psychologists do and how we think through our role in this world. Oh, That theorist that I couldn't remember, the one who talks about radical acceptance, her name is Marsha Linehan. You might want to check her out if you want to learn more about how radical acceptance can help you. Speaking of helping you, please, if you discover that you need some help, whether it's testing or therapy, don't be afraid to reach out to a mental health professional. We are definitely here to help and want to support you. So... Season one of At the Same Time is coming to an end. But before we land the plane, we've got one more section. Our last section of episodes is going to focus on the spiritual dimension because we are whole beings, physical, psychological, and spiritual. With that in mind, we sought out teachers and clergy from different faith perspectives to talk to us about who they are and how they're getting through this pandemic as well as how they're talking with others about navigating the challenges of living during this time. Please join us.